It's another great day to talk about what happens inside the boardroom. Welcome to Board Vision, the official podcast of the NACD, the National Association of Corporate Directors. On this show, we share perspectives from leading corporate directors, discuss what makes boards effective, how they can help companies face challenges today and become future ready. In this episode, Friso van der Oord, NACD Senior Vice President of Content, discusses the future of boards with two members of the commission that released NACD's Future of the American Board report. Luis A. Aguilar, an NACD certified director, a board member at Donnelly Financial Solutions, InvestNet, and the NACD Atlanta chapter. We're also joined by Jan Babiak, a board member of the Bank of Montreal, the NACD Nashville Advisory Board, and the Walgreens Boots Alliance. How can boards become and remain resilient in the face of volatility, now and into the future? This episode of Board Vision is made possible by our sponsor. Want to dive deeper into the boardroom hot topics referenced in NACD's annual report? Register today for Deloitte's Board Governance Webinars hosted by Deloitte's Center for Board Effectiveness. This quarterly series provides board members and executives from across industries and geographies with the opportunity to connect and hear insights on topics prevalent on many board agendas today. Learn more and register at Deloitte.com slash US slash board webinars. Thanks, Jen and Louise, for joining me today for our podcast on the future of the American board, an initiative NACD has launched at the beginning of this year aimed to help boards build towards high performance in a more demanding future. We issued our first report titled A Framework for Governing into the Future earlier this fall. It was designed around 10 core principles and contains a lot of guidance, questions, and tools to help boards self-improve and uh, enhance their effectiveness. It's now available to the public on the NACD website. And both of you, Jen and Louise, contributed so immensely to this work as commissioners sharing your wisdom gained from so many years of experience as leaders in companies, other institutions, and roles as executives. So I'm delighted to have both of you here and and share your perspectives with our audience today. But before we jump into the substance of the work we did together, I would like both of you to talk briefly about your individual journeys as directors. And Jen, I'll start with you. How did you begin that journey as a director and what motivated you to get into the boardroom? I guess my journey started decades before I actually started on boards. I've always had long-term plans. I had my first 10-year plan when I was eight. And as I began to think about where my career would go for you know, act two or whatever was next after my corporate, I looked at a way that I felt that I could use the experience that I had gained across many years of serving many industries because I was in technology, which is a very promiscuous lever that lets you move between sectors. It allowed me to go from strategy to operations and all across the piece and board work seemed like a really good way to get highest and best use of the experience I'd gained internationally and domestically. And so I set a path to prepare myself for that before I even started on my first board. I love the planning ahead. <laughs> even in this environment, it's probably <laughs> even more key than ever. Jen, talk a little bit about that, that first board seat. How, how did you get there? 
because I had started this journey probably 10 or 12 years before I was ready to leave, I was in the big four, which doesn't allow you to sit on boards because there's too many conflicts. I started establishing relationships with search firms and asking to meet with their head of board practice to just chat with them about what kind of skill sets were important and what kind of skills were important. And given the time I was doing it, they told me I didn't fit the brief because you had to be a 55-year-old CEO of a you know a large company or you couldn't sit on boards. But I never listened much when people told me I couldn't do something. <laughs> so I was establishing the relationships and I would say to them, look, even when I can't sit on boards, I know an amazing number of candidates, particularly women and others. So when I can help you, give me a call. And so I had all these search professionals calling me and I had uh, just given my notice in my role and a search person called me and said, I have a perfect board that you would match perfectly because I need someone who's lived internationally. I need someone who's really deep in technology. I need someone who's got their credentials to chair an audit committee. You'd be perfect, but you can't do it, of course. Can you name someone? And I said, well, interestingly enough. And so, whereas some people will say I was very lucky, I was. But on the other hand, you know, the, the more you practice, the luckier you get. That's right. You certainly had that luck on your side. Louise, how, how about you? Yeah, Freeze, on the opposite side, if uh, Jan planned for it, uh, me as maybe more happenstance. You know, I've been around boardrooms a long time. My career was as a lawyer and my expertise was in corporate finance and corporate governance in a relatively large firm. And so we dealt with a lot of companies that were either public or going public. And I had a lot of exposure to many boardrooms as that process unveiled. And so I became educated both in the good and the bad. But I also in my own life was very active in nonprofits. And as a result of that, I you end up being directors at the nonprofits in order to oversee their work and to help them with them. Most nonprofits, as you know, are volunteer operations, and you end up you usually sitting on the board. I also served on the boards of some private companies for either personal reasons or because friends asked me to. So I was very experienced with those. And then in the 90s, I became general counsel of a very large institutional money manager in Vesco. And I ended up sitting on most of their subsidiary boards, not in the public board, but I have a great deal of exposure to the public board because of my work as general counsel. So I became really experienced with board work and very interested in it, but didn't really go seeking for it. And then my career took me to be a commissioner at the SEC, where I was there for about seven years and soar in about a month before the great crash of 2008 and stayed through the end of 2015. And when I left the commission and was trying to figure out what to do, I was fortunate in that my phone rang, or, or I guess in one case, an email arrived, one from a CEO of a public company, New York Exchange Traded, others from search firms asking me whether I would be interested in joining a board. They were interested not only in my regulatory experience, but they had done their homework and realized that I actually ran one of the divisions for Invesco, small division, but it was a Latin America operations. And so they were as interested in the fact that I knew my way around a business, the legal side as well as the regulatory side. And so the, the phone rang. I knew enough about boards to know both the challenge and the rewards of helping a company marshal its resources grow. And I decided to say yes, and it's been a rewarding experience for me. So one question to start off with as we talk about this ambitious NACD initiative, and Jen, I'll start with you. Our board's really at a critical juncture point, right? We've seen this before with Sarbanes-Oxley uh, more than 20 years ago now, uh, Dot frank Those were compliance-driven 
juncture points in some ways for boards. This feels different, but at the same time, there's a moment in the market where it feels like boards, boards ought to transform and change. What, what are your perspectives? I'm blessed to be on a couple of boards that are just brilliantly governed, you know, that are literally award winning in terms of their governance and how they go about it and what they apply. And for them, I wouldn't say it's a critical juncture port. It's just part of the continuing evolution that they go through and have always been committed to. On other occasions, I've gone on boards that the governance was just a mess. And one of the reasons why they sought me out was they wanted someone who had experience in that. And we transformed companies by changing the composition of the board, by changing the information that the board was getting, by looking at the relationship between the board and management, all of the principles that are laid out in the framework that's been defined here. What does it mean to be successful as a business today? And maybe, Luis, I'll go to you. Isn't the definition of winning in today's marketplace changing and does that have an impact on governance, right? As we think about the advent of growing in a more sustainable fashion, uh, considering stakeholders, et cetera. That, that does feel like a, a shift. Maybe we're not transforming capitalism as a system, but we see signals right in the marketplace that indicate quite a significant departure from perhaps our old ways of thinking. I think you make a good point, Frizzo. I mean, I think winning has been redefined in the sense that with the new technologies, the megaphones and the greater exposure of social media that puts a spotlight on companies, it redefines winning, if you will, because winning at what pace? And winning by how much? And the exposure in many companies these days doesn't allow them to go you know, quietly in a pace, working on improving their technology and their workforce, just moving along at incremental paces, even if they're positive, is not considered winning by many people because of the focus that can be put and can be put immediately through these social media systems on companies that makes winning a more difficult thing to claim. I do think that for many companies, there is, in fact, a critical juncture. If you define critical juncture as something that's a turning point that alters the status quo and forces you to develop new ways of addressing issues, I think that the dynamics that the framework talks about, the pandemic, the social upheaval of the last few years, like the murder of George Floyd, the growing concern about sustainability and climate change, the frequency of cyber attacks and ransomware, supply chain disruptions, workforce issues, all of that are a myriad of factors that every company is having to deal with. And they're having to deal with it in the spotlight for the most part. And they're having to deal with it in a way that requires them to move with more agility and quicker. And so to me, that's almost the definition of a critical juncture point. The status quo, the way you've done things isn't really going to work in today's present and in the future. And the way you go about dealing with it will define whether or not people outside objectively see you as having been on the winning side or not. No, that's a great point. I think challenging the status quo is always hard, right? Especially in boardrooms, change comes at a glacial space, so to speak, right? It's it's an evolution in boardrooms, not a revolution. It's important that people understand that boards have, I'm going to say, three jobs, one of which is the obligatory business usual stuff you've got to do. You've got to get the 10Q out. You've got to get, you've got to meet certain regulatory requirements. And you have to do that regardless of whether you've got a pandemic or a war or 
you know, or whatever's going on around you. You've got to do that. Now, it may change the nature of your disclosures, of course, but you've still got to do that. You've then got the second job, which is to react to things that were maybe unanticipated, maybe just, you know, maybe anticipated, but unexpected in terms of timing or what, you know, that the idea of a pandemic had been, you know, discussed on the fringes on many occasions, but no one ever thought it was really coming. But when it happened, it happened abruptly. You know, we had companies that were going, you know, 50,000 employees from 5% working at home to 100% working at home in the space of a week, which if you had planned that, you would have probably given yourself two years to do it. So you have that reaction time. And then you have the third part of your job, which is to anticipate the future and to get in front of it. And if boards aren't doing all three of those simultaneously, and maybe, you know, there's a different balance, you know, in March of 2020, we were all pretty much focused on that middle one. But then the quarter end came about three weeks later, and we were focused on, you know, what that meant for the first one. So I think it's important that any board that is not doing that third one, even when you're in the middle of a crisis, is not doing their job because you've got to be looking on the horizon what does this mean for the horizon? How are you reacting to that? And so all three of those roles are simultaneously important, but you've got to be intentional about making sure you're doing all three of those roles. I agree completely with Jan. I I would only add the following, that even though you need to be intentional, you also need to be flexible. Things like the pandemic, things like the upheaval around the George Floyd murder, a company that gets a cyber attack or ransomware. Yeah, they, they by and large have plans, but I'm reminded of Mike Tyson, the heavyweight boxer, who says everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And so for, for many companies, they were punched in the face and they may have had plans, but then when they look at the plans and they realize, well, you know, they're not as good as they could have been because we didn't anticipate this. We did not know this could possibly happen. We thought that our cyber securities were more robust and it turns out that they were. And so what do we do? So you got to have the plans. I agree wholeheartedly with Jan that if you don't have a plan to start off with, you really are behind the eight ball. But you also need to be flexible enough, agile enough to be able to to take a different turn or different perspective when actually something does happen. Uh, I will tell you the sad story, if you will. CEO of one of my public companies had a tragic death and that a drunk uh, driver killed uh, him and his wife. And we had in the company, as many companies do, we had a very good emergency succession plan, which worked very well. But in the moment of it happening, there was a lot of looking at the plans and saying, well, you know, we didn't think it was going to, we thought it was theoretical. Now it's real. What do we do? And so, you know, we gave it a lot of thought. Fortunately, we had had a good plan, but it showed you that we got punched in the face and we did give a lot of thought to whether or not the plan we have created which everybody was comfortable with, is it in fact the best plan? And a lot of second guessing went on, as you can imagine, a lot of good discussion at the board level before we decided that the plan really made sense. But but we got punched in the face and all the plans in the world need to be revisited <laughs> once that occurs. Yeah. I like the three jobs you just described, right? The core, the business as usual, which you still need to get done in an excellent fashion responding to crises, but also starting to anticipate the future. What, what do we perhaps need to change in the workings of our board to fulfill those three roles? Are there norms they may need to challenge? You know, you talked about the status quo, Louise, that, that we need to 
revisit in, in order for us to, to be agile and flexible? First of all, that is one of the main jobs of the board because you do have management that, you know, has, a, I'll call it a bias toward one or the other. You know, I, I once had a boss who believed that everyone sat in either the operations and execution role or the strategy role, and he tried to put people in each of those. But there are people who are what I call the Rosetta Stones who, you know, are very comfortable walking in strategy or walking in operations, you know, and saying, well, wait a minute, we have a great strategy, but how are we going to execute on it? Or you know, we're executing great, but, you know, where are we going? So I think part of our job as a board is if management is over-indexing in an area and not paying attention to another area, it's part of our job to make sure that we're balancing those parts of that. And I think that it's important that when we look at the composition of a board, that we have people who, you know, view it as their job, not to say I'm an operations person or I'm a strategy person or you know, I'm a technology person or, you know, whatever you pick, you know, an HR person, whichever title you want. But our job is to make sure that we are hitting all of these 10 principles at the right time and in the right balance because they're not going to always be equal you you know when you're when you're baking a cake you don't put the same amount of you know sugar eggs and flour you you know you use them at a different point in time to create you know what you're trying to do you can also which i find quite useful is set aside good chunk of open ended time without an agenda for full board discussions. Boards, because of all the work they have to do, which Jan mentioned a bit a while ago, especially the public company boards to meet with all the SEC regulations, have full agendas. They get a good bit of materials they have to digest for the meeting. And then a lot of discussion at the meeting that is usually focused around uh, the materials that were, even if the materials themselves are not discussed at the board, the, the discussions are extensions of that. And you don't always, however, get time with the blackboard cleaned to just sit back and say, you know, an intellectual exercise of thinking through what ifs, thinking through things that could be, but potential opportunities that seem far-fetched but haven't really been explored. And I think those kinds of chances are, are and opportunities because of today's pace and because of the already high level of work the boards have to go through isn't done as often. And you do have to be very disciplined about making sure that you give yourself, you know, unstructured time to discuss whatever's on the mind of the directors that will benefit the company and bring value to shareholders. I like that, Luis, because that may be a new habit we need to learn as boards and management teams, right? Agendas are often so structured. We get plenty of materials to review. There's not much space left for the deeper discussions and more fundamental questions. So I think that's that's a good piece of feedback. And that's something we've described in the report too. Boards need to be well-informed, but they cannot be overwhelmed by information from management. And management cannot dominate the agenda of the board. There needs to be some level of independence there and self-determination on how we set our agenda and how we use our time effectively as a group. Let me go to the question about the work the commission did. You know, both of you were involved in a series of meetings with a very large, diverse group of commissioners, regulators, folks of your background, Louise, but also other individuals from the investor community. What was one of the most difficult issues the commission encountered? And where did we perhaps struggle to develop consensus? Because we covered a lot of ground 
right? We talked about purpose and culture and the importance of shareholders and stakeholders. What was the most difficult issue in developing consensus? Jen, I'll start with you. We had such a diverse group among the commissioners that their boards were in different places and were at different points of the maturity model. And, you know, your own experience, if you're having issues with something like succession planning, then that was more important to an individual. So I think our biggest challenge was finding balance so that we put a report together that would benefit companies wherever they were and could be used by companies, whether, again, you know, whether they were private, whether they were public, whether they were small, whether they were large, you know, whether they were global, whether they were domestic, etc. So I think finding balance was the bigger challenge versus having disagreement on any particular principle. But I think there was general agreement as to des- the destination we all wanted to go with the various topics we were dealing with. But like in many cases, the devils were in the details of how to get there. And I'll, g- I'll give you one example. Uh, and Jan, you may remember this. There was a pretty, uh, you know, good discu- discussion about to whom the disclosure is aimed. Shareholders, stockholders, regulators, all of them. And also, you know, once you decide that, how, how much information is meaningful and useful and not just noise? Uh, in other words, you don't just back up a truck full of documents and say, here it is. Uh, but, but rather it's important to make the disclosures readable, understandable and meaningful to the reader. And so there was a good bit of, dis- if I remember, some good discussion about how to make that happen. But you're right. We had, everybody recognized that this was not going to be a how-to manual and that one size was not going to fit all. And therefore, we need to work on the principles in an open enough way, open-ended enough way, that I think everybody was in agreement as to where the destination of that particular principle should be. Where I felt some tension, and I think it was early on, was around stakeholders versus shareholders. But I think we landed in the right place in in articulating that in the long term, those interests are highly interdependent and ultimately converge, right, in the pursuit of long-term value creation. And we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Where there was a little bit more heat in the conversation was around executive compensation, right? Do we as a board need to rein in executive comp or perhaps revisit almost entirely the set of metrics uh, we use to design compensation? The one area where I felt the group really leaned in was around the expanding scope of the board role to include talent and culture, right? Those were two principles we hadn't covered formally in our prior NACD work. We've issued these principles uh, 10 years ago. And I think the inclusion of board oversight of talents and, and culture was a really important addition. And I think everybody aligned on that. So let's go to the um, question on the rising importance of, of stakeholders. So in 2019, the, the Business Roundtable Right, issued their now famous statement on the purpose of the corporation, emphasizing the importance of delivering value to all stakeholders. The report we issued seems to build somewhat on that statement, right? which drew quite a bit of attention back in the day because of shifts away from shareholder primacy. How do we as a commission consider the interests of all stakeholders in, in terms of 
for governance? Like, wh what does that really mean for the role and purpose of the board as we, as we consider adopting a multi-stakeholder approach, right? Does it change our accountability? Does it change management accountability? Maybe, Louise, I'll, I'll start with you. The framework fully respects the shareholder ownership of the company and understands, however, that stakeholders are important contributors toward achieving shareholder value, and it is simply unwise to ignore them. You know, the long-term interest of shareholders largely depends on meeting the fair expectations of a variety of participants, stakeholders, the employees, the, their customers and consumers of their products, you know, the community in which they live. You know, you ignore them at the risk of adversely affecting shareholder value. An unhappy workforce is not going to be motivated to work as well as they can be. If customers are not happy with your products, they're not going to be buying them. And so, you know, paying heed to the views of stakeholders is, is not putting them above shareholders. It's simply recognizing that they are an important component of success in any company. And you need to listen to them. You need to pay attention to them. If they've got concerns about your operations, you need to talk, sit down and talk with them. You may learn something. They may learn something from you. But ignoring them because, what are, because you're so focused on shareholders will ultimately, over the period of time, be de detrimental to the value of the company and detrimental to the shareholders. Because if you don't have happy employees and happy customers and happy regulators, you cannot be successful as a business. So for me, it was less of an issue. And, and even in the commission, when we were talking about it, there were those who were viewing it as a more revolutionary thing. And I, it just wasn't something that it wasn't the way I saw things. I, I do want to dial into the, the employee, I guess, mandate or perspective. Since the pandemic, or even before that, right, the work or the employee has received more attention, right? Not, not just their health and well-being. We've seen the great resignation, the war for talent, a lot more focus on employee engagement, uh, recognition, retention, right, culture. What are your boards doing differently to really engage on this talent issue? That is so critical, especially in, in knowledge-based companies. And, and Dan, I'll start with you. Has that changed a lot in the way your boards are engaging on this in the last number of years? People are attributing what's going on right now to people were at home, and so they saw a different model and all that. But I would attribute it as much as anything to the fact that we've got record levels of unemployment. And when you've got that on a basic su economic supply versus demand situation, the <laughs> the supply is going to get to you know dictate a little bit more about this because you know you're, you're actually seeing language come back that we were using some time ago, the war for talent and, and these kind of things. So I think this is more of an ebb and flow with a, you know, hybrid working overlay that got accelerated because we were always working more toward some form of hybrid. It just got accelerated in March of 2020. There's a lot more engagement around it. There's a lot more. How does this fit into our physical space? How does this fit into our risk management? How does this fit into our productivity? So there's more analysis of what it means to have more hybrid working. The way that the labor force has changed dramatically in the, the styles of uh, you know what they call the Generation X and Millennials and Generation Z, you know the the, the baby boomers are at the tail end of uh, their careers. I, I represent that remarks. Uh, I live it, 
And, and, you know, when you do the analysis and when you have experts come talk to you, as we have had in our boards, and they talk to you about what it is, you know, how do you motivate your workforce? And every human being is different. I, I recognize that. But writ large, there are certain styles uh, and motivations that are attributed to the general X's that are different from millennials and different generations. So you, say you as a board have to understand what your makeup of your company is. Yeah. And, and you may actually have to you know, treat different groups differently by providing the, the communication style that is meaningful to each group and to uh, motivate them in the way that uh, is meaningful to that group and do it in a way that's holistic, if you will, because you've got one set of workforce and you really can't say for the people that are born between 2001 and 2020, we're going to do this for you. Everybody else, we're going to do something else. That that won't work. So you've got to sort of put all that in a blender and try to come up with some factors that will be motivating to all your workforce, but recognizing that uh, at least writ large, different generations prefer different types of motivations and different types of communication style, all of which makes it a lot more harder on managements and boards. Uh, to address some of which compensation can do, but for certain of these groups, it's not about getting the biggest dollar. That's not what really what drives them. And so all of that are very complicated things that for comp committees and talent committees makes uh, a difficult job even harder. I think there's another very important point here is that the the views around this are not necessarily generational. You know, I, I was talking to one of my goddaughters who's she's five years postgraduate and she works for a big brand name company. She's, you know, mid to late, late 20s. You know, she is finding that she can't get her 40 year old bosses and those because they prefer to work from home. And so I don't think you can sit here and say, well, it's the young ones that want this and the baby boomers still want to be back in the office. It's it's a big mix. And you really have to be aware of that without trying to generalize. And you also have to look if you have a company that's 95%, you know, customer facing and in the stores or at the branches or something like that versus the head office people who, you know, and you can't, you've got to make sure that you've got things that create solidarity and empathy and, and things like that as well. As you started to talk about what motivates, maybe not the new generation, but many workers in this environment, and that is purpose, right? the organizational purpose, mission of the organization of the business. And we talk about that at length in the report. Uh, we tie it to long-term value creation, right? Only organizations that have a clear purpose uh, around a, a good or service or even something of value to broader society can attract talent, can offer a unifying uh, perspective to the organization, to customers, what does it look like in, in your firms, and maybe Jen, I'll start with you, to fuse performance and purpose? Is that a real conversation in a boardroom? You talk about purpose. Some organizations have had purpose for a long time, right? This is not new. And I'm fortunate in that the boards I'm on have had purpose as front and center for a very long time and mission and values and things like that. I think the real challenge for management now is getting a balance that looks at, you know, that mission statement relative to all of the stakeholders, which sometimes have conflicting positions. And, you know, I can look at situations where, you know, you'll get shareholder proposals, one of which is saying, you know, we won't serve 
oil and gas at all. And another one saying oil and gas is critical to the future of society, at least in the short to medium term. And so we want clarity that you're going to continue to serve these important industries. And so where are you as an organization in terms of how you deal with these contrasting demands, particularly when you're widely held by a number of shareholders and every political person can have a view on you, as well as every media, whether they are left, right, or center, can have a view on you. Plus your employees who, you know, if you've got 50,000 employees, you can bet that about half of them go one way and half of them go the other. So I think the real challenge here is not you know, whether to be mission driven, it's to be how to, to have a mission that, you know, is right for the organization and doesn't alienate a whole lot of other stakeholders. That's powerful. And it's in line with what we say in the report, but I think you accentuate it even further in this environment, right? A purpose needs to be authentic, enduring, tie into your strategy, right? Engage customers and employees. It shouldn't distort what you're about as a company. It should clarify your long-term direction. Louise, any, any, any thoughts from, from you? For whatever reason, I immediately equated purpose with mission. They seem to be different words for the same thing. But after you listen long enough, and then, of course, you, you go back and research, you realize that they, in fact, while there's overlap, they're different. They really deal with different things. I mean, mission's about you know, what you do and for whom, generally. And purpose is, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? What's the reason for existence? Those are both powerful things that good companies should spend time thinking about. And I think for many of the workforce, millennials and others, I think the purpose, why are we doing what we're doing, is, is certainly more important than what it is we do and for whom. But uh, I would gather that for probably baby boomers, maybe General Action X, mission is more of a driver. So they both must be content, but I think the more powerful one is, in fact, corporate purpose. You know, you you were talking about things that we discussed that were some disagreement with, and you recall uh, that there were some different views on what the hierarchy or the ordering should be of the principles. You know, which one should go above which? They're all interconnected. They're all interrelated. They're all important. But no one argued that corporate purpose shouldn't be at the top. It was more of a discussion about the other ones. Is, is talent compensation more important than board management relations or, again, information? But corporate purpose as a driver for decision-making is a powerful, powerful tool. Given the political dynamics in today's environment that demands, I think, strong convictions and consistency. One of the elements we talked about quite a bit in the commission was around board management relationships, right? Board effectiveness is only as good as the relationship you built with the CEO, with the broader management team, in terms of the information they provide, in terms of the, uh, obviously the execution they deliver. What do you think CEOs and management teams need most from their boards in the coming years, recognizing turbulence will likely only increase? And Jen, I'll, I'll start with you there. What I think is important is that the relationship between the CEO 
and broader management needs to be healthy and open and transparent and access needs to be readily uh, available, if you will. But I would extend that beyond the CEO. I was once on a board where the CEO didn't let any board members talk to anyone in the company unless the CEO had a representative there. And that was a very uncomfortable situation. I didn't stay on that board very long by my own choice, but it's something that if we can provide you know, if you're audit committee chair, you can provide support to the CFO, or if you've got strong technology background, you can provide good support to the CIO, all without becoming management, of course. But again, it's going to vary. And, you know, I think about how my role has changed across the last, you know, four or five years where, you know, we were working in a booming economy, then we're working in a, in a, a pandemic environment, and then we're working in one that's got inflation and, and all kinds of other factors. And the role I played each time was slightly different depending upon what was going on. Louise, how about you, Jen? I appreciate that perspective right there. They're different CEOs for different moments and therefore need different counsel and relationships. But Louise, any any experiences you want to share? When you're speaking about relations between the board, the CEO, or management, to be effective, I think it begins with ends with trust. You have to have a trusting relationship, uh, which is quite frankly, amorphous sometimes, hard to define as an intangible. How do you get there? Uh, you can certainly create behavioral norms around the issue, but ultimately it requires enough interaction to fully appreciate the honesty and integrity of both sides uh, from which trust can develop. Uh, because without trust, view it cynically, management doesn't trust the board. They may not be as forthcoming with information, especially bad information, as they would be. Uh, boards that don't trust management may not uh, be willing to accept their actions without trying to micromanage their actions so they can control their actions, all of which is unhealthy. Right, it's not enshrined to into governance uh, standards, but the the idea of being a sounding board, a safe space, uh, is is really important too. So, I'd love to get from each of you your your favorite principles. As we said earlier, we identified ten core principles that can help boards build towards high performance. Right in the future, in a very turbulent environment, and uh, there's flexibility in applying those. Each board will go at it. Uh, a little bit differently. But for each of you, what, what was the most important principle for you? And how do you suggest that boards may consider putting those principles into action? One of them that I find interesting is around agenda and information. You know, too frequently, board members sometimes rely on management to give them their information. And I think that one of the most important parts of our role is to make sure that we're getting a lot of outside in information. And, you know, one of the nice things about NACD and, you know, the big four and other organizations is there is a tremendous amount of opportunity for us to learn about things as they're evolving in front of the curve, because you guys are all really good about saying this is what's coming on the horizon. So what am I doing to spend time to learn about those so that when management who's very busy, you know, making the quarterly results work and all of the things that they're having to react to, I can raise and say, how are we thinking about this? How are we thinking about that? Our job is to not just wait till management presents to us. And I too frequently will hear somebody say, well, 
you know, will management give us a briefing on this, that, or the other? Well, I actually don't want my briefings from management until I've gotten briefings from a whole lot of other different places so that when I hear it from management, I can add something to that. And I think in a dynamic world where, you know, board members are, things are coming along that they won't have experience with. In fact, management won't have experience with, you know, you think about where we were with crypto, you know, eight or nine years ago. Um, we need to be constantly learning and making sure we're learning on the outside and making sure that we're, you know, driving that in our own personal development so that we can help, you know, with the agenda and information side of these principles. I mean, they're, they're, you know, all the principles, I mean, they work together, they're interrelated, they're synergistic, they work in a collective manner to to let to assist boards be high-performing. It, it's hard to really pick one over the other. I mean, I had a different one in mind, and then when Jan started talking about agenda information, I started saying, well, gee, maybe that is the, the one. But, but you know, I, I guess the thought I had first before I heard all the wise things Jan said should have been, would be strategy and risk. I guess those are the ones I probably would put first, maybe with uh, talent compensation being a, a very close second. But, but all of this also is driven by gen information. So Jan's got a very strong point. But, but to me, given the pace and scope of the, of the trends that are impacting businesses today, strategies are not something you set and forget. They need to be constantly monitored, recalibrated, recalibrated, adjusted to react to new developments, whether it's technology advancement, advancements, you know, new regulations, supply chain disruptions, or, or what, or other things that may occur. And so you're always having to review your strategy. Is it still fit for our purpose? And every time you look at strategy, especially when there's new developments, you got to turn your attention to new risks. Are there sometimes risks that we hadn't thought about or you know, that were unanticipated, but now with these new developments come to the forefront? Uh, what's our thinking on that? So let's talk a little bit about the longer term future, right? When we had our commission conversations, we, we talked about the next year or two, investor pressures, regulatory expectations, societal expectations. And we try to project forward, right? In terms of what that means for, for governance. And uh, that's how we designed the principles. But as you look forward the number of years, five to 10 years, how do you see the boardroom change perhaps more fundamentally? Or maybe it doesn't. What are your, your predictions based on what you've seen as, as a director uh, in your experiences? And Luis, I'll start with you. I hope that in 10 years' time, boards are so diverse and representative of our communities that the issue of the benefits of having board diversity is so recognized. It's such a truism that it doesn't even need to be mentioned. It simply is. It's the status quo. I hope it happens organically, and I hope the efforts that we're putting in as a as a nation and as an NACD body will make that a reality. It's happening, but for many of us, it's happening slower than it needs to happen. But I'm hoping that there'll be a geometric progression, and in 10 years' time, we'll look at all of our boards and just see that they represent our communities. And that as a result, they're all high-performing because all the data seems to indicate that diverse boards are higher performing. So that's good for the economy and that's good for shareholders. Uh, I guess the other thing I guess I would expect to see, you know, as an outgrowth of the complexity that boards are facing and will continue to face with greater and faster pace of technology, with uh, enhanced regulation, enhanced scrutiny by stakeholders, more activist investors, 
making themselves known. I would think in 10 years' time, there may be a more of a progression to a more formal professionalism on the board. I mean that, you know, you'll have at least some percentage, not necessarily a full-time, a people who are selling their skills as a professional director, but rather directors who have some kind of training and some kind of experience that can be evidenced in some sort of formal way. Again, not to give a shout out to the NACD, but the NACD director certificate is one that comes to mind. But I would hope that maybe not all directors, but that they at least have some percentage of directors that have gone through some training. And you can look at the board and collect that the collective board and you can make an objective, not subjective, but objective determination that they are fit for purpose because you have folks that have had that kind of training. I would love to see us, you know, have enough humility as Americans to stop thinking that we have all the answers. The, you know, there's some fantastic governance models in other countries around the world, and we're very dismissive of them, but they work very, very well. I do think that we should think about governance models around the world and why other people consider those. So I would, that's something I would like to see us collectively work at. And then the very important one that I think will be very transformational to us, you know, and some people will come kicking and screaming into it, is the board's role around ESG and with the E being an important part of that, not just the S and the G, which we've probably favored a little more on, because I think we're going to have reporting standards where we're going to need to get some comparability and standardization, just as we do with GAP, you know, for finances. And I think that that is, you know, again, whether people like it or not, that is going to transform the boardroom of the future. Imagine a chair or a board director listening in uh, to this conversation, hearing about these principles. What do you recommend? Uh, when they go back to their board for their next board meeting, that they do to advance the conversation around this, right? Every board is different, different initial conditions and approaches. But imagine with the report at hand, how do you recommend they they start the conversation? Louise, I'll, I'll start with you. That's a very good question. One way to start. But one thing that the framework does well is the questions that they ask. If you don't have time to read the entire framework, which uh, is not that long, it's well-written and concise, but assuming you don't, is I, I would print the questions and I would just hand them out to the board members and say, can we answer these questions? And that's a way perhaps to get dialogue started. And it may be that they can recognize as to some or maybe all, all the questions that they don't know enough of about the operation of the company or the way it's being addressed to be able to answer it. And that may be one way to get the dialogue started. One thing that I would recommend is that we communicate to people that it exists. Um, and I would recommend that it be communicated outside of the normal board cycle. Too frequently, something like this gets added on as other reading to the end of the board papers, which are already several hundred or in, if you're a bank, several thousand pages long. And then it's a tack on at the end. But if you send it out of board cycle and say, you know, this has come out, it would be great if everybody, you know, at least read, you know, the, the executive summary, or the, you know, the key points, looked at the principles. And it'd be nice if we maybe had a discussion over one of our board dinners about it. And so, you know, I, I think that's one approach. Another would be to get engagements from the chair of the nominating governance committee to kind of think about, you know, having, you know, working with company secretary to kind of map 
you know, where, where are we against these questions? And are some of them not as relevant to us as they might be to someone else? So I think there's any number of ways one could approach this. But, you know, you've got to look at your culture and think about, you know, how that's going to be received by the individuals in the room. I think one other idea is to start integrating it where you can into your board evaluation. Right, or not maybe not every single principle, but there are some principles where we want to probe a little bit more on where we are in terms of our current effectiveness and practices and approaches or proficiencies, and that may be another way to formalize it and, and drive some outcomes. But I want to thank both of you for a great wide-ranging conversation. We covered a lot of ground, lots of great stories and, uh, and perspectives from both of you, given your unique backgrounds. That concludes this episode of Board Vision. We hope you enjoyed listening. Please subscribe and join us next time. Until then, visit nacdonline.org to stay informed about the latest resources NACD has to offer, such as memberships, certification, national or chapter events, and our content, including reports, articles, and directorship magazine. That's nacdonline.org. Thank you for listening.